This episode was recorded in part on the traditional lands of the Gadigal and Mongol people of the Eora Nation and the Darug people of the Darug Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Welcome to Trope Watchers, the show about pop culture and why it matters. I'm Mia. And I'm Scott. We're culture scholars who believe that no, Matt Damon, you do not deserve an award for not assaulting women. For our final episode of season one, we are joined today by special guest Kate Loney. Kate is a final year PhD candidate in the Gender and Cultural Studies Department in the University of Sydney. She's also a research associate and the UK project manager on the Interfaith Childhoods Project with RMIT University, as well as a visiting lecturer in the Department of Sociology at City University of London. So Kate, tell us a little bit about your research. Thanks Mia and Scott for having me today. I'm really looking forward to being on this episode, which is the, (laughs) I guess, a bit of a wrap up of 2017 and what we've sort of discussed are the biggest celebrity stories of the year. Today's um, episode will focus on what's really caught our attention uh, in relation to a number of fields and how that intersects with celebrity. So I guess sort of to introduce this um, episode to you guys and I guess listeners as well, um, I was sort of reflecting on what initially prompted my interest in celebrity and like part of my thesis is based on um, interviews I conducted with young women in the UK and Australia in 2015 and it involved like semi-structured interviews broadly considering sort of political engagement and perhaps unsurprisingly celebrity was a significant portion of that either in regards to the relationship between celebrity and politicians but also celebrity as I guess we would traditionally define it so you know someone like Kate Middleton came up quite a bit and so did someone like Kim Kardashian and whenever I mention those figures um to people say who aren't in the arts and social sciences you know there's there is often this sort of audible kind of disbelief that they're like oh you're actually writing a thesis on this (laughs) like how like oh, like, how that's absurd. How could you be doing that? But you know what? Like, celebrity has been a big part of my life ever since I was a little kid. I grew up, uh, my mother was obsessed with the royal family, as a lot of people were in the early 90s, uh, particularly somewhere like Australia. So I was very familiar with who Diana was, you know, Prince William, Prince Harry. Obviously, they've got a particular resonance or ongoing resonance at the moment. And I think celebrity is really important. Um, just you know, initially from the basis of that it dominates so much of our lives, whether we're conscious of it or not, or whether we like it or not. It's got that really significant currency that I think, you know, regardless has to warrant some sort of further investigation. And yeah, and I'm also very, um, I don't like that idea of that sort of high, low culture that I think still exists Mm. um, to a great degree in, in, you know, amongst people, you know, it's that, and that's something we'll talk about a bit later, you know, that sort of perception that, you know, the Kardashians is low culture, but, you know, something like opera or Shakespeare or whatever is high culture. So I think those binaries and the existence and continuation of those is really interesting. Um, but also who enforces those and because these these sort of binaries don't come out of nowhere um so as you said this is my final year i'm in the last couple of months of my phd that looks at how young women broadly speaking engage with politics 
Um, prior to this, I'm from a Melbourne girl originally. I um, moved to London and did my master's over there in, in gender and media. And it was while I was in London that I became inspired to do this particular PhD project. I was there uh, in 2013 when Margaret Thatcher died. I thought the coverage of her um, and the reflections on her legacy was really interesting. You know, seeing these sort of headlines, it was like, you know, great leader, but terrible wife and mother. And the quite explicitly and, you know, gendered coverage afforded to her. And obviously my main knowledge and understanding of Thatcher is usually through um, various pop culture texts. So, you know, she's that sort of bogeyman in like Billy Elliot or The Full Monty or Brass <laughs> There's that particular genre, you know, from the 90s, um, you know, often reflecting on sort of masculinity and the north of England and things like that. Um, but I thought the coverage of it was particularly interesting for me because that was also the time when Julia Gillard was getting, copying a fair amount of abuse yeah. within the Australian media. And I just thought it was, it was fascinating that these sort of tropes of appearance, private life, behaviour and these really traditional expectations, how they continued, you know, across decades, across ideological backgrounds and across contexts. Mm. So yeah, that's, I guess that's how my uh, PhD project started, very heavily sort of parliamentary focused. But obviously as, as all of these kind of uh, research projects do, it's evolved significantly beyond that. And so in summary, if we were going to do the one sentence summary of what my PhD is, it's looking at how uh, celebrity mediates young women's political engagement. And um, yeah, it's really key. Um, to understanding that, particularly in a really heightened uh, political climate and particularly, you know, in regards to uh, those demographics as well and that sort of ongoing concern about how engaged young people are. Well, I'm glad that so close to submission, your one sentence summary is still so long. (laughs) (laughs) It still might change. (laughs) So for today's episode, we're doing something a little bit different. We're looking at five key celebrity moments of 2017 and we're going to be really quickly diving into each of these moments. Um, There's probably a couple of these that we might need to dedicate a full episode to in the future. Uh, So if there's anything in particular that listeners you're interested in hearing more, definitely send us an email. But for this episode, we're quickly jumping in and looking at what are the five, I guess, highlights or most uh, important or poignant celebrity moments of this year so far. So we're going to start with celebrity and hierarchy and looking at the Kardashians. Now, Scott, we haven't heard much from you so far. What is your cultural knowledge of the Kardashians? Literal nothing, I have to admit. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't one of them dating Kanye or married to Kanye? That's all I know, to be honest. Married with Two kids, I think? Yeah, one on the way via surrogate. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, we're leading on you for the celebrity stuff here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I guess, um, you know, obviously these are really subjective, these media episodes that uh, we've sort of come together and collaborated on. But um, what I find sort of, and you know, we're in the 10-year anniversary of, of keeping up with the Kardashians and... What I find sort of enduringly fascinating about this is, you know, this the currency of this family and the fact that 
what is it about this particular show and this family that has that ability to last for 10 years? Like, if it was a show like Mad Men or The Sopranos or something, if you get to five seasons, it's like, whoa, you know, this is, this is properly successful. Um, but obviously, uh, reality TV and, and obviously in this instance, the Kardashians more specifically, uh, see that obviously in a different sort of level in terms of hierarchy so I guess what I was interested in exploring further details with you guys is what does this um, particular example of celebrity teach us about you know what's still perceived as legitimate celebrity to what extent is this gendered and this is drawing on existing theorists um, and works by uh, Graham Turner and also uh, British academics uh, Kim Allen and Heather Mendick um, and also, as I mentioned earlier, these notions of high and low culture and the extent to which this, um, I guess, phenomenon, if we can call it that, uh, reiterates or like challenges this, um, but also, I guess, reiterates and challenges gender stereotypes. Because I find Kim Kardashian's, in particular, her performance of femininity really interesting and how that's at real odds compared to, say, if you think about, you know, the waif of the 90s and Kate Moss, which, you know, if I mentioned to undergrads, they don't know who she is anymore. But I remember growing up in the 90s and, and the particular sort of exemplars of femininity then. And, you know, compared to now and, uh, you know, for better or worse, how this is sort of um, has shifted since then and as, as a result of, of uh, this particular particular family and their particular currency in broader pop culture. It's fascinating to see how like this tends to get tied into discourses of fake celebrity like she hasn't earned being a celebrity because she hasn't done anything when I mean she obviously has just been on a tv show for 10 years she's got as you're saying like a makeup line and an app and um, she's uh, either her or her mum or the people she works with are geniuses in marketing so the idea of her doing nothing like people don't stay famous for 10 years for doing nothing yeah and and something I find really like so really interesting is that enduring fame and how it's played out across different media platforms and like I remember the amount of upset that was being caught that was caused when she featured on the cover of Vogue and people thought that was like that was so outrageous and like sacrilegious of someone like Anna Wintour to you know to dare to feature this woman and her particular you know associated brand of celebrity on something like Vogue and it's like well those those sort of um hierarchies of where we sort of place you know a reality tv program shown on Eve and Vogue those aren't naturally occurring these are sort of socially constructed perceptions of you know value and worth and, and things like that and it sort of reminds me of what uh, Kim Allen and Heather Mendick have said uh, that improper fame tends to be associated with female celebrities particularly if you you know think of the British context and the enormous amount of emphasis given to the wags um, you know what's recently played out is uh, you know Colleen Rooney and whether she'll leave Wayne Rooney because he's been cheating on her again and or like, you know, Victoria Beckham in, in 2007 when, you know, the, uh, the, sorry, when England was in the World Cup. And um, so, you know, wag culture and how that sort of people turn their nose up at that. Um, but there's also a really great quote I'm reminded of from Kim Allen. Uh, 
as Kim Kardashian as a popular reference point for improper fame. Um, and, you know, largely due to the significant role her body has played in her initial gaining of fame, but also her ongoing um, brand of celebrity as well. Yeah, and the Vogue thing I find particularly striking because as someone who doesn't really read those kind of magazines, if I was to look at it really cynically, I'd be like, well, Vogue trades in a currency of superficiality and, you know, aesthetics. And that's exactly what people criticise Kim Kardashian for building her empire on. So I'm like, no, those things seem to me, again, from a very cynical outside perspective, the perfect match for each other. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because, like, I, I remember finishing school and it was when Paris Hilton was at her height. This is giving away my age. So this was the early 2000s. And Paris Hilton was the, like, epitome of female celebrity and it was such a bleak time. And for some reason, <laughs> I don't have... It was so depressing. And if you think, like, if you think about... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm being a bit judgmental about poor old Paris, but um, if you think about how they really hit particular pinnacles of fame, obviously, you know, Paris Hilton comes from that hotel empire, Kim Kardashian's father was one of the lawyers for OJ Simpson, so there was like a, a level of fame already there, like a limited one, but it, there was that sort of existing undercurrent. And it is interesting how Paris Hilton's star has really dwindled off. Um, you know, post-sex tape, you know, 10 years later, whilst uh, Kim Kardashian's one has been able to translate into a multiple other platforms. Okay, well, how about we take that as a little segue into another family who are famous for doing nothing, which is the royal family. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, particularly in this, t- particularly touchy in this time of austerity over here in the UK. Um Strangely, for someone of my age and um, Australian citizenship, I guess, I'm, I'm quite pro-royal. Um, I think mainly for cultural reasons and historical reasons. I've, I've related to a lot of people who are very into watching them, so it's been ingrained in me from a very young age. Um, but, you know, when the third baby was announced, uh, there were some terrific memes going around talking about, you know, family on benefits on state benefits, you know, having another child and all this kind of thing. And um, it, it sort of has been interesting. The last couple of days, there's been a lot of coverage afforded to um, levels of poverty here in the UK. And it's really shocking. Um, you know, it's shocking regardless, particularly around Christmas time. And you hear these stories of, of children going into community centres and looking at the shelf with the toys or the shelf with the food and picking the food. Um, You know, statistics like one in five children are in poverty here in the UK at the moment and it's meant to be a first world country that uh, we're living in. So it does make you think about then, you know, looking forward to May next year and the amount of taxpayer money that's going to be spent on this wedding. And obviously they talk about... um, the broader effect of this wedding on um, national pride and bringing the community together and things, but that's something that's definitely sort of been an additional um, angle to my thoughts the last couple of days. Um, yeah, I guess the role of the monarchy and how much the state is involved in in funding, you know, security and um, quite privileged lifestyles, and obviously there's discussion about how much 
you know, the monarchy as a brand um, brings into the UK in terms of tourism and things. But um, yeah, that was just a little bit of more political dimension of discussion I wanted to bring in. Yeah, so, and I guess what's been interesting the last couple of weeks and obviously being over here is the engagement of Prince Harry um, to uh, an American actress, uh, divorced American actress, which sort of has acts as a bit of a reminder, particularly as the crowns on Netflix at the moment of, you know, past British royal family history. Um, and the coverage of that was really interesting um, in a lot of respects, quite backward. You know, you would like to think um, discussions about the morality of divorce or discussions about, um, you know, people of mixed race background had moved further on than they have. But I think, you know, in a lot of quarters, it really hadn't. And, um, and also that discussion of her particular brand of celebrity and whether it was good enough. But then aren't the royals also occupying a particular brand of celebrity these days? Like, is, is it, can that correlation be made? Like, are the, is the royal family political or are, they, or are they celebrity? I'm not quite sure about it. What do you guys think? Well, I do come from a family that also was obsessed with the royals, being my dad migrated over from Britain. And for some reason, my mum, who has lived there like all her life, is obsessed with them. I remember when Princess Diana died and they had the, the funeral march on live, broadcast live on television. We were all forced to sit down and watch it, which felt like forever. Um, but... Yeah, it's, it, it kind of interests me why the royals, particularly in Australia, have such a following still because, I mean, we I talked about this with my uh, first years this year, just speculating on why there is such a currency around royal celebrity in Australia and whether that is a sign of some sort of agenda in terms of opposing you know any sort of Republican movement or whether that's just a naturally evolving consumerist reflection of people's ongoing interest in this family. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really come from a family that was that interested. So I I was a little bit shocked when I started speaking to people my age who were so invested in having um, like a continued royal family. And because I was always, you know, I hadn't really felt like a royal family in the UK was really an Australian royal family, even though it technically is. And it just kind of wasn't, I don't know, like I, <laughs> I didn't have those connotations. But speaking to people my age who I would have assumed by now would have died down a, li- a bit, a lot of them just had this kind of, I guess, romantic attachment to it, um, particularly when we're still fed a pretty steady diet of these kind of narratives of princes and princesses and stuff in the media that we consume, the fictional media that we can consume. And this is like the most tangible way that we can actually get our hands on it. It's like, no, it still exists and it's it's ours and like they're our, our queens and princesses and whatever. I, I do find it, the fascination with them really interesting, but also just the, the narratives of the um, rags to riches, like the, of the princesses. So, or and duchesses and stuff like that idea of someone who was just a commoner, but in reality, like these commoners are very rarely commoners as I would see them. 
<laughs> like they're commoners <laughs> and millionaires like exactly exactly so looking at kate and her being like you know yes this this commoner who married a prince and it's like well, she wasn't really a commoner i was doing a little bit of reading at your suggestion kate on this um on her history because I, I didn't know much about her at all so i was looking through and like her parents were like super wealthy and she went to all these great schools and stuff and she met him at university and but you know they always focused on her mother being self-made and an entrepreneur and like <laughs> just this idea of her just being one of us I'm like no no she had a, quite the silver spoon background by certainly compared to most people I know um but I guess it's just a more romantic story to take in yeah, and that's something I find really interesting. And, and I think the media, for different reasons, um, made a big emphasis on it was that, you know, Kate Middleton did receive this excellent education. And then, you know, there was a lot of focus, you know, and she got that nickname Weighty Katie because, you know, William kept her waiting for like 10 years before he like married her and stuff. Um, but you know, the media was like, oh, she hasn't got a real job and all this kind of thing. And then I guess you see sort of a similar thing now. It's what is it about being in the royal family that requires someone like Meghan Markle to all of a sudden quit her job and like she was a UN ambassador and stuff like she's got to quit all those roles. Like I can't really think of any other role or any other marriage where in this day and age where that would be a sort of mandatory requirement? I'm, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm... I find that really... It's it's a really strange thing. And, and particularly, obviously, since Meghan Markle especially has been very outspoken in her feminist activism and, and she's spoken at the UN about her sort of process of becoming a feminist uh, or recognising that she was a feminist at a very young age. That's like, to what extent, I guess now maybe I'm doing feminist border policing, but how is that, to what extent is that compatible then with then entering into a very heteronormative, very traditional institution um, that still has quite set expectations about uh, the roles of the men and women involved? Yeah, I mean, I guess it'd be really interesting to see if the way she's presenting herself to the public changes now. 2017 has been a pretty massive year in terms of celebrity activism, in terms of like, for once, seemingly actual tangible things happening. Like, I feel like never before, so at least, you know, in my kind of adult life, has there been a movement like the current sexual harassment and assault allegations and the Me Too thing that came out. And I'm sure we'll all have our own opinions on Me Too as a... <laughs> is like um, uh, uh, activism but I I can't remember a time where anything has had actual effects and has lasted this long in people's kind of public interest yeah and and the cross-cultural nature of it as well um which is shocking because obviously there's been a history of, of particular individuals um, working in a variety of industries and in a, a number of countries and it's taken until now for these stories to come out. Like I think most recently, well this is in the political field, but um, Robert Doyle, the Mayor of Melbourne, has recently taken leave because there's allegations against him now. 
yeah, just the the power or the, the system that that kept these allegations quiet for like a number of decades. And I was watching an interview with Ronan Farrow, um, who said, you know, he was uh, repeatedly threatened by Harvey Weinstein and his associates um, if he was made the decision to go ahead uh, with his story for the New Yorker. So much so that his uh, representatives at uh, CAA, which is a particular big, um, quite heavyweight Hollywood uh, representative agency, uh, his rep there was instructed by Weinstein uh, to tell Bronan Farrow to pull the story. This representative refused. And it's just like, you know, you hear these stories about the casting couch in Hollywood, and you often see it referred to in. Um, you know, if you watch a biopic about Marilyn Monroe or Joan Crawford or all those sort of uh, stars from that Hollywood era and you hear the horror stories of what that system did to someone like Judy Garland in terms of, um, you know, starting off like what ended up being like, you know, lifelong addictions to, you know, drugs and alcohol and things. And, like, part of me is not surprised that this sort of system continues, but part of me is, like... Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't even know how to th how to think about it. And the other than it's shocking and so pervasive, and it's like, how do you even begin to address these kind of issues? I don't even know what the answer would be for that. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of. I mean, these issues are, are so complicated. We're barely going to scratch the surface in this very short segment. But I think a couple of things really struck out to me is just so complex is first of all um kind of tracing back to because we we know that when we're looking at figures in Hollywood and we're going to kind of localize it to Hollywood here because it has been much more pervasive than just Hollywood but if we're looking only at Hollywood people knew like there was no one here that literally everyone was surprised by except for the victims like there were always people around them that were aware but then there were the circle of people who were either aware or had suspicions or had been warned about things but hadn't actually had any proof and kind of in those awkward in-between spaces of without having experienced or seen something themselves, are they supposed to do something about it? So we see a really interesting way, if you're going back, the way that things have been incorporated, especially into comedy. So shows like 30 Rock or interviews with Seth MacFarlane, like they make jokes, which I still don't really know how to address that. Because I was looking at kind of the commentary afterwards and people were really in two minds, like people being like, yeah, like they were trying to call them out back then, but they couldn't. And then other people like, no, they knew and they didn't do anything about it. And I think it's a case by case basis, but I think there is something to be said about when you've got you know, a, a whole institution that's ready to protect people who are abusers and who are harassers. You've got the choice of risking everything. And, like, that is a real thing. And I'm not going to be the person to be like, it's your job to risk your entire future to do the right thing because we constantly don't do the right thing for selfish reasons. Like, everyone does that. Um, or try and subtly get the message out there so that when stories like this finally do arise, the groundwork's there and the public go, I feel like I kind of knew that already, but I don't know how. 
So I don't know, like Scott, what's your thoughts on the people who don't have first-hand experience but are kind of aware? Like what is their role in these kind of systems? Wow, that's put me on the spot. <laughs> Let me think for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, today, today's douchebag is Matt Damon and he, <laughs> he does speak about, you know, he was asked whether he would decide to take on a role with a particular project if he knew certain things were going on. And he did reply saying he would make that judgment on a case-by-case basis. So I think in that respect, he's kind of reflecting what you're saying there, Mia, in terms of, you know, sometimes we do do selfish things in that respect. Um with the consequences of what that would mean for you uh, in mind. Um, I mean, Matt Damon, I I apologize if this becomes a rant because it's been on my mind all day. Some people just should not speak and Matt Damon's one of them. Um, So, listeners, I mean, he's the kind of guy where um, you look at him, he's got that vacant expression on his face. You just realize this is probably a guy who doesn't think through what he's saying before he's handed a microphone. Like, I've always had that sense about the guy, and today kind of confirmed it for me. <laughs> so, listeners, if you don't know, Matt Damon was interviewed for some sort of upcoming film I'm not going to watch, saying, you know, he we don't get enough stories about the guys who aren't sexual predators, which is a rhetoric that's kind of sadly familiar to me. I know a lot of Matt Damon's quite a few of them don't surprise me at all in their Damonness. some of them do to be honest and it's kind of been pronounced in the wake of these me too allegations and when various different names crop up under the spotlight and you realize some of your favorite tv shows are affected by this um but that discomfort that um matt damon is kind of exhibiting here is is also familiar because i mean we here at Trope Watchers and broadly in culture studies do tend to push back against generalized generalizations about particular identities, in this case men, but usually it's about um, generalizations about racial groups or religious groups or sexuality, so on and so forth. So that discomfort is a real thing, but I find that for in particular men responding to this kind of broadly broadly disruptive um, avalanche of voices coming out of particularly Hollywood is that this is an opportunity um, to really grapple with what that discomfort means. And so what it means to me is the fear of potentially having your body signify something negative before someone perceiving it gets to know you in quotation marks. And so for a lot of people, that fear is reality throughout their lives, right? While men, particularly in this case, like Matt Damon, rich white men are starting to experience it possibly for the first time in their lives. So a lot of people are probably seeing his comments and going, well, yeah, that is shit. And that's what a lot of these voices are talking about. So, um, I mean, you don't like that feeling, Matt. Imagine experiencing it since birth right? Imagine being assumed to be a violent criminal because of the color of your skin and the clothing that you wear. Imagine being assaulted or having traumatic experiences fall upon deaf ears because of your gender, right? 
that these are the kind of stories that we're seeing a lot come out of America. I mean, I know I brought in that to Black Lives Matter as well, but it's just kind of the same phenomenon. Imagine what it's like to have you, the real you, constantly lag behind the meanings attached to your body's characteristics as a persistent reality of your life experiences. So that's what I think that discomfort really is an opportunity for a lot of men to really grapple with and learn from. It's it's an opportunity to become more sensitive towards what others experience on a daily basis. But Matt Damon, <laughs> Matt Damon, in his Damon-ness, chose a very different approach. He chose to deflect to a, in quotation marks, not all men kind of quasi-rhetoric, right? I mean, we've all heard that before as well. Just in general, if you raise any sort of feminist agenda, that's usually a a response these days, which is quite pathetic in my view. And he kind of made the issue about men's representation, which actually distracts attention away from the men that do rape and abuse, and as well as the stories of their victims, right? So even if you don't believe every single narrative that's said as part of this hashtag MeToo movement, I mean, you you got to assume quite a great deal of them are genuine victims of rape and, and abuse. And Matt Damon has decided that they're not worthy of being uh, of receiving so much attention compared to the victimhood of what met, is happening to men's representation. This felt victimhood, because I don't think it's particularly accurate at all what he says. And that re- rhetoric uh, kind of acts as a shield, you know. It, it in my view. In espousing that view, Matt Damon kind of puts himself closer to the kind of predators he's like clearly trying to suggest he and so many other men are separate from. So I think I've like <laughs> abandoned the question that you asked me, Mia. But my overarching point here is that fellas, just don't be Matt Damon, please. Like just, just try to take on board what I just said about that discomfort and what it actually means, because. Uh, the, the feeling of sort of defending oneself, feeling that one's kind of under siege, particularly in their representation, is, is natural, but it's not particularly um, appropriate in this case. So what can people do? I don't know. I don't know, Mia. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is interesting in thinking about that idea of like the... But let's think about the good man. And funnily enough, like, even if we take out of the equation all of the ways that, you know, the media is constantly talking about men, (laughs) if we assume, like, specifically he wants people to talk about men who aren't sexual harassers and abusers, which is a weird thing to be asking for like talk about men in that very specific context here as a man he does not have a history of harassing or abusing women let's talk about that um but even that is kind of happening in the uh there was a big thing recently about john oliver's interview with dustin hoffman oh, yeah. where he grilled him about like it was supposed to be quite an amicable just standard interview and he kind of went for it um, but what was really interesting is watching what happened afterwards because there were essentially two, I saw two main broad feminist responses to this. The first being like, yay, John Oliver, he's done a good thing. And the other being like, why are we focusing on John Oliver? Like he did a decent thing. Like 
great but like why is that the thing we're focusing on and I guess I stand somewhere in between like I think like I look at an interview like that and you know what it is no matter who you are it's a tough thing for anyone to go in and put yourself on the line and say I'm going to be the one to go against the the social norms like even in a really basic scenario like it is difficult to be the person at work who says hey stop being racist stop being sexist it's always hard you don't get a cookie for it but it's always hard and I I appreciate that it's a difficult thing and I'm glad when people do it but yeah like the, it was I really uh was kind of caught between the these two big responses of the praising of John Oliver and the stop talking about John Oliver, he just did his job kind of camps. So we are well and truly into our fourth topic now, which is that kind of merging of celebrity and politics. Uh, Scott, you had a note here on the parasocial. So do you want to expand a bit on that? Yeah, no, just these points about social media and celebrity, particularly, particularly their engagement with social media forms reminded me of the concept of parasocial, which came up during my one week teaching celebrity culture, which makes me an expert. <laughs> <laughs> this idea of a one-sided relationship with the image of a celebrity, right? So we feel attached, we feel close, we feel we know these uh, individuals because of these kind of technologies. And it used to be um, TV that provided this, right? So the the fun, the transformative effect that the TV had was that it brought people into their homes, in, into people's homes, and people felt closer to these these names and figures that they once only read about in the newspaper, right? So I think it was who was the first U.S. president that had television as part of their tenure? Was it Kennedy? Can't remember. What? 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 Yeah, yeah, that was a huge part of his. Because well, he was up against Nixon, mm. I can't remember. It was early '60s, but yeah, that was that played a huge role in his eventual election. Because you know, you've got well, everyone's seen what JFK looks like, <laughs> so and also you know, his, his you know, photo very photogenic wife and everything. So yeah, it was definitely. I was pr- pretty certain it was JFK. But it also made his um, it it eventually made his eventual assassination also. Like the the impact of that was shared throughout all these households because they had the television as well. So these kind of events unfold before our eyes in a way in our very living rooms. And there's been a lot of research into how that compared to, you know, uh, attempted assassinations or actual assassinations of leaders in the past pre-television. So I feel like social media in a way is, a, is kind of emblematic of that. But just to circle back to the parasocial. So we we feel attached to certain celebrities. And I feel like this uh, manifested quite prominently in 2016 when everybody's favorite celebrity died at some point, right? I'm actually mm. glad that we're yeah. having this recap episode this year because last year's would have been very, very depressing in that respect. Um, so well, this w- is depressing in other ways. Well, yes. In fact, probably more so, to be honest. I, I retract my previous statement. But so to what degree do you feel, um, Kate, that the parasocial sort of uh, manifested in this sort of Trumpian era? Well, I think it's interesting if you compare, like, say, Obama's media brand and Trump's media brand. 
um, Obama, like I can't think of any major mess up or scandal that he was really involved in. He was very, you know, highly stylized, um, a really, a, you know, consummate media performer. Like you would see him, um, you know, dancing with Ellen and, um, you know, going on Jimmy Fallon, but also being credible you know, talking to the UN. And it's sort of part of, of this ongoing academic discussion where it's like, we expect our leaders to be um, both ex authentic and extraordinary. And with Trump, I think whether it was a reaction to that, um, I think it was part of, you know, 2016, like we said, with the, the celebrity deaths, but it was also, I think, a an interesting period politically. We saw Brexit, we saw the rise of the alt-right, mm. um, we saw the election of Trump that many people thought was never, you know, just extraordinary. We saw a real backlash against traditional ways of doing politics. Um, yes, Trump's technically a Republican, but he's not the Republican establishment. Uh, he basically really only got on side with him because he won, essentially. Um, I think... Obviously, if you think about like sort of two-way social media engagements, I think it's still very much a one-way relationship of, you know, this of even though Trump writes, you know, apparently writes all his own tweets, it's it's still very much him proclaiming things. It's not, you know, an ensuing kind of conversation. But what's been interesting to see over here in the UK uh, in recent months, because there's been another election, is the sort of rise of Jeremy Corbyn's kind of, I guess, cult of personality that surrounded him. And you see uh, people sort of really picking up his brand and really running with it. I was listening this morning to get into the mood for this uh, podcast. I was listening to um, a clip from The Guardian, which is reflecting on how uh, uh, this chant, which is like, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, oh, yeah, yeah. um, being appropriated to um, Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes. Um, I won't sing it because that would be terrible. But... Um, but also Corbyn, uh, you know, his name emblazoned on T-shirts with like the Nike swish. Um, and, you know, not that long ago, someone like Jeremy Corbyn was seen as completely unelectable. And now, you know, in response, I guess, you know, to recent political events, hopefully, you know, potentially this is the pendulum swinging back the other way, away from the right and towards the left now. Um, so that's been an interesting um, sort of, marketing trend to observe and, and very much a sort of grassroots marketing trend. I don't think a lot of this is coming from Corbyn himself. Maybe he then appropriates it, but I think these are very much sort of, um, I guess, ad hoc kind of movements. Um, other weird personality cults that have emerged in the UK is one involving Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is this ultra nerdy, ultra right wing, uh, conservative politician who has some appalling stances on um, abortion, for instance. That's my main one I know about it. And he's also pro-Brexit as well. Um, you know, the winner of, the most recent winner of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, was this girl off Made in Chelsea who's like 20. And she was in uh, the paper on the weekend calling him a, like a sex god. I'm like, are we looking at the same person? <laughs> like, it's just, I, like, I find it extraordinary. And obviously then there's someone like Boris Johnson as well, who's made sort of buffoonery kind of look like a, a really tactical, really savvy political marketing form. Yeah, and then but then obviously you compare that to Theresa May and 
um, who's probably got like one of the worst jobs in politics going at the moment. Um, you know, classic example, and we see this play out in state politics in Australia quite a bit of um, the party, you know, party-wise and ideologically, the ship's going down, so then, you know, a woman gets brought in, which inevitably leads to some sort of election loss or, or crisis, and because, you know, obviously women, to a fair degree, still um, possess this burden of representation, this affects the cause of women in politics, as a, um, despite the fact that, you know, any leader in that position would have been elected out. Um, yeah, I think that's my, <laughs> that's my rant about the parasocial, but, um, you know, maybe in terms of backlash terms, um, I think the Trump election, like, I understand why people voted for Trump, but hopefully now this, the election of him and, and, you know, the varying degrees, which you can still see, um, the relevance of the alt-right, particularly in parts of Europe, hopefully that's leading to increased political engagement amongst young people who tend to possess particular political ideologies. Um, so hopefully that will challenge this notion that young people are disinterested. Um, that's definitely what my research found, that um, you know this idea of voting and, and being knowledgeable about policy points and stuff is still a really strongly held belief amongst a lot of um, young women, or among my sample anyway. Yeah, just on Twitter. You mentioned um, Trump risking nuclear war with North Korea. Um, I do have a standing bet with a friend that we made once we realized that Trump won, and I bet that he will declare war over Twitter. I came very close to winning that bet, which is horrific to think about, considering I made it as a joke. But yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, wow. It's and, and like, who would have ever predicted that that would have been the platform for that? You know, that kind of um, policy decision. Like, I don't think I would have ever seen Barack Obama do that. But um, what was interesting to sort of reflect on in regards to my own research is, uh, so a lot of discussion about social media engagement obviously came up if you're thinking about political engagement generally. And... Um, it was all about Facebook and Twitter. And now that sort of um, trajectory, I guess, has moved on. Now it's about like Snapchat and Instagram and things. And, and, you know, so it's gone from MySpace to like Facebook and Twitter to, you know, the latest sort of platforms by which people do politics. And, um, yeah, the idea now of a politician not having some sort of social media presence and a carefully cultivated one. Because even though it might not look carefully cultivated, I think Trump's is definitely, there's definitely an agenda behind, like, I think it's way more um, calculated. Than oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. yeah. 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 So on, on the parasocial for listeners who want to learn a little bit more about that, I actually came across a video recently uh, on YouTube called Fake Friends Episode 1, who only one episode's out so far, Intro to Parasocial Relationships. Uh, which is by Strucci Movies or Strucci Movies. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, but if you follow us on Twitter, I will tweet a link to the video. Um, but talking about a carefully cultivated social media presence and the parasocial, let's move on to our final uh, topic for today, which is Taylor Swift. 
that's that's yeah i like how that it's just the name it's like that's it's just like what whatever the connotations of taylor swift are <laughs> um i find taylor swift so a really interesting case study um or exemplar in popular culture or, or person or figure in popular culture and obviously there's the link between um or perceived links between her and Trump that various uh, tend to be, you know, left-leaning media outlets have written about. But also, it seems to stem from this fact that she didn't outwardly, I guess, uh, proclaim a side. And obviously, it was a very, um, it was a particularly nasty sort of campaign. I think all politics is nasty to a degree. Um, I think just by its nature. But obviously, I think in the lead up you know, between Clinton and Trump, it was, it was particularly, uh, I wouldn't even know how to describe it. I think it's like insert adjective here. It was, it was a particularly, um, turd fest. Yeah. There, that, that's a good word. Yeah. Um, I think that sums it up, but you know, there was the involvement of like Katy Perry was heavily involved in the Clinton camp. And then there was also, um, the deployment of, you know, Democrat, favorite like Bruce Springsteen and then Gaga and then Beyonce and Jay-Z it also you know had an enormous role in the Obama uh, previous Obama campaigns as well so this sort of links between Swift and Trump seem to stem from the fact she didn't make an outward admission of who she was voting for um, which I think is also interesting in terms of like what we expect now from our celebrities in terms of their relationship with politics and um, that we, you know, this sort of outward exclamation of this, because um, they seem to really cop it often. If if you know a public figure comments about politics, it's often dismissed. But now we're equally, we've got this scenario where someone's not outward about you know their political persuasion or ideology, then they will similarly um, cop criticism, and all of a sudden they're a Trump voter. Yeah, yeah. Like there seems to be a double bind there, right? Yeah, it reminds me of the conversations I had with students about philanthropy, with that whole cynical idea of celebrities doing philanthropic causes, like pushing charities and stuff, those, those kind of causes for publicity. And the kind of um, cynicism that surrounds, oh, they're, they're not doing it for the right reason, thus the activity itself and any good that it might have is disqualified, that kind of logic. But then... Here we have Taylor Swift, who, in her silence, is also copying it. So you're damned if you get political and you're damned if you don't in many respects if you're a celebrity. Yeah. And, um, you know, particularly I'm reminded of uh, particularly the amount of criticism that gets leveled against someone like Bono or George Clooney and stuff. (laughs) Um, But I was, I was, I am quite a fan of Taylor Swift, not her earliest stuff, but her recent stuff. And... Um, I was reflecting this morning, I'm like, you know, if it had come out, if she was a Trump voter, would I still listen to her music? And I'm like, probably not. Like, I just, <laughs> and I'm like, is that, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I couldn't quite decide. Um, you know, she is also the producer of the highest selling album of 2017. Um, and also I, I find it quite amusing that, that her, the lead single off that album, which is called Look What You Made Me Do, is seen as, as very much... Uh, characteristic of the Trump era approach to sort of life and politics that sort of uh, I guess um, apportioning of blame whether that's the right word for it 
Um, yeah, what do, what do you both think about this? Well, that song, I mean, I'm going to confess something here. That song's amazing. I love that song. <laughs> I just can't help myself. <laughs> it's a great jam. I love it too. I love it too. <laughs> it's on my rotation at the moment. <laughs> it's excellent. It's not just me. No, no, I actually do like a few Taylor Swift songs. I don't know a whole lot about her celebrity or her career in general, but particularly um, her recent hits as well as Shake It Off and stuff. Yeah, I'll shake it off. Yeah. Uh, I will admit it. I'll shake it off. <laughs> and what I also find, like, the, the continued... <laughs> shake it. Like, the continued also attention to the fact she seeks... Um, it's quite highly publicised. She sort of gets inspiration from her private life as well. And, like, the number of male friends I've had of mine who say, oh, oh she's a bunny boiler, which is... I hate that phrase. What does I that hate, mean? It's so... It's from that movie, uh, is it Fatal Attraction? Yeah. It's like an 80s movie. With Glenn Close. With Glenn Close and bunny. Michael Douglas. Yeah, so they're having an affair and he he's a married man and he goes back to his wife and kids. And so she kills her, her his daughter's bunny. Mm. Yeah, spoilers for the film, but... <laughs> oh, okay. Wow, well, that was... <laughs> That went in a direction I did not expect. <laughs> uh, I think uh, if you haven't seen Fatal Attraction yet, then I'm sorry. But like, the, you know, bring up the latest Star Wars as a spoiler. That would be quite inappropriate. But I think you can spoil Fatal Attraction by now. <laughs> I think I I've, I can picture the scene you're talking about. Like I do, I, ha- I have absorbed it osmotically whatever that word is mm-hmm. um but yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> i didn't actually realize the context of- so who is tay tay in that respect she's she's the scorned wife is she um i don't think she's even necessarily the scorned wife it's just how she's characterized by a lot of men of my acquaintance which probably says not that much about the men i'm friends with no, more, than taylor, but- <laughs> <laughs> more than taylor but um you know she's had quite a few high profile romances you know she's in her 20s she's God forbid she goes on some dates, you know. But I think the um, the sort of moralising about it within, um, and, you know, in particular media outlets like Daily Mail, like no shock there. But, you know, the source of, you know, love lives and broken relationships and things, how many songs have been written and inspired by those. And I find it really interesting that she sort of seems to be really singled out for that as if... Um, you know this and again suggests those you know the relevance of those tropes of like the bunny boiler and the like scorned woman and and all these kind of things so um i feel we're definitely going on the defensive for taylor here do we know she actually voted she took okay so she took a photo on her instagram or something of her like outside a polling Uh, okay yeah because you don't have to vote so this expectation that celebrities not only vote but come out and say who they voted for seems odd to me. So it'd be a different situation here, obviously, with our mandatory voting system. But, yeah. but can't you see if people have voted? You can't see what they voted for, but you can actually look up and see whether people voted or not. And I don't think you can take a photo in the polling booth because I think it was, I think it was Donald Jr. got almost got into trouble for that because he took a photo. So, but I think, again, like it's sort of, it's an ref- interesting reflection of what we expect from celebrities, this sort of need for them to be overtly political, but then we simultaneously criticise them when they're doing so. Um, like, if you read the comp, I don't even know why I do this to myself, but, you know, if, if Angelina Jolie has done a 
presentation for the UN or something and you're reading about this on the Daily Mail and you go to the comments, like, the things you will read are just incredible. Again, I don't know why I do it to myself. And that is one thing where, yeah, I will... I will say that the criticisms manifest in very gendered ways, but it's certainly not something that is exclusive to particular gender um, in that, you know, we saw similar backlash here in Australia with, um, I still don't know if he's pronounced Macklemore or Macklemore, <laughs> um, but singing Same Love at the NRL Grand, Grand Final. So for those of you listening outside of Australia, this was kind of in the lead up to... Um, the the plebiscite voting on marriage equality in Australia uh before we even knew what he was going to perform we just knew that he was performing at the NRL and there was this huge thing about there should be not even a separation of like celebrity and politics but like a separation of like sport and celebrity and politics and that you know a celebrity had no business mentioning politics at a sporting event like it's this whole thing um and then we've also seen uh Eminem's recent things got we were talking recently about Eminem's car park uh rap video about Trump which was very confronting um which I really liked yeah that was a pretty incredible clip I have a very complicated relationship with both Eminem and Macklemore um <laughs> Uh, but in both respects, in this instance, I appreciate what they did. Although I did like one of the, the tweet in the aftermath of Eminem's little car park rap where someone's pointed out it took a white guy <laughs> doing a mediocre rap for for the musical style to be recognized as a legitimate form of political protest. Which, <laughs> like, I like the rap, yeah. but that's pretty on point in this respect. Um, mm-hmm. So... Just circling back to Taylor Swift, um, compared to Eminem and Macklemore, like, is this the kind of political intervention done by a celebrity that people seem to be expecting from her? And I will point out that Taylor Swift has had a role to play um, in the recent sort of, I mean, we call it the hashtag me too now sort of wave, but she had a kind of proto moment in that respect when she took a lawsuit against a DJ that groped her when she was a teenager for $1 to essentially prove a point. So she hasn't always been this figure that's played it safe in terms of politics and social justice. Yeah, and I noticed she featured on um, the cover of Time along with a number of other um, women who've come forward in recent months, including um, Tarana Burke, who started off the hashtag me too movement and um actress ashley judd who was one of the first accusers to come out about harvey weinstein so they were sort of the the i guess the women who had come forward were named you know times people of the year um and i think also part of it with with taylor swift is uh what people have sort of perceived as her sort of problematic engagement with an embodiment of feminism and again going back to this sort of feminist border policing um you know, you think about a couple of years ago when she was on a tour for 1989 and the sort of um, high-profile sort of concerted efforts that were made to publicise this sort of girl squad. Um, and, you know, the girl squad were a number of very high-profile, um, very privileged women. Um, a lot of them were, you know, model kind of physique, like Amazonian sort of figures. And you see them in the... Uh, 
video clip for, clip for Bad Blood. Um, and also, you know, her being open about um, that she wasn't really a feminist until she became friends with, like, Lena Dunham, and then it was, like, Lena who, who sort of has, was constructed as really sort of showing her the light of, like, yes, you know, I am a feminist and things. But, you know, there's all sorts of then connotations around Lena Dunham and her brand of feminism, which is, you know, the subject of, like, a whole other podcast as well. So I think Taylor Swift, for a number of reasons, I think is quite a loaded figure. I think we have an episode in the works that will just discuss engaging with uh, popular culture whereby certain artists have been exposed as um, unjust or, or have problematic views. Uh, just, just navigating that sort of dance between our favorite popular culture stuff. Because I've, a lot of mine have fallen into that trap this year, I must admit. So it's taken me... I'm not sure... Like, I, Kevin Spacey... Kevin Spacey is, uh, I mean, I'm a massive fan of House of Cards, but he's also central to my favorite film of all time, which is Seven. So there's a lot of thinking about whether I should engage with certain forms of media uh, because of the allegations that have come out and how his position of power has been used to perpetrate these alleged crimes. So, yeah, I, I think we'll talk about that more going into the new year. So on that note, we have, as I thoroughly expected, gone well over our (laughs) allocated time slots for each of these topics. So, Kate, I might give you the probably quite difficult task of summing up in a minute. (laughs) Yes, Um, no worries. (laughs) Yeah, why why was this important to talk about? (laughs) I think it's important. Celebrity is important because it... Like I've said before, whether rightly or wrongly or um, consciously or otherwise, um, celebrity in broader media culture dominates a number of aspects of our lives on an everyday basis. And I think what these case studies have suggested is how intersectional it is. You know, celebrity in politics, like celebrity in gender, celebrity in sexuality. Um, You know, a study of celebrity and, you know, broader pop culture tells us a lot about... Um, you know, what we privilege, uh, what we aspire to, what we disparage, um, yeah, what we regard as, uh, you know, subversive, like all kinds of things. Um, obviously, you know, celebrity culture is a massive part of, um, you know, media coverage and increasingly so these days in a, in a media climate that sort of privileges, and this is quite cynical, privileges you know the story and getting these stories out as opposed to um perhaps quality um you know there's that perception that celebrity stories are cheap and easily disseminated and things um yeah and i just yeah i just think it's interesting because it tells us a lot about i think our contemporary context and uh what we value and how that can potentially change over time but also how i guess it can stay the same which can be also quite depressing I think that's my summary. <laughs> I think it's a good summary. Uh, Thank so you. <laughs> so you can find Kate on LinkedIn. I'll put her link in the episode description. And I might also... Kate, did you have any um, further resources you wanted me to link in the episode description as well? Um, there's a terrific um, Facebook page that uh, I follow. And it's called Celebrity Gossip Academic Style. And it's put together by um, an American um, 
celebrity studies academic called Anne Helen Peterson, um, who's recently just released a book called Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, which uh, contains a number of uh, reflections and discussions about a range of different uh, female public figures. Uh, so yeah, Celebrity Gossip Academic Style is um, a terrific read and it's on Facebook. And I think that would be my main one, other than, you know, I guess having the odd look at the Daily Mail page and, and getting angry <laughs> about whatever, whatever horrible <laughs> ideology they're proffering. Um, you know, yeah, aside from just encouraging general awareness, um, yeah, that would be uh, my recommendation. But um, also, you know what, in recent years, the number of like popular feminist texts that have emerged have just been incredible. And the ability to buy these is like, you know, obviously online, but in increasing numbers of like bookshops and stuff. And um, so I think that's a really positive step as well um, in terms of disseminating ideas about, you know, gender and media and, and things like that. I think that does us for today. Um, so if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find our podcast. You can find this episode and all future episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. Also check out our website, www.tropewatches.com for all episodes, extra content, or to download an RSS feed. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash tropewatches. And you can tweet at us or follow us on Instagram at tropewatches. You can also email us at tropewatches at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Scott. And I'm Mia, and we are your trip watchers.